morning and welcome to online version of Ordinary Life, an educational offering of oh, St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas, wherever you are. I'm glad you're here with me and soon to be Dr. Holly Hudley. Yeah, I'm really tickled right now. <laughs> that was funny. So I'm not going to tell that joke. Yeah. On here. We really be grateful that people don't hear what's coming on. So it uh, looks like we're in for a long haul of this, being online. I'm glad you're here, um, hearing from more and more of you, and forgive me for being so far behind in catching up with emails. Mm -hmm. I vowed to do it, but it's hard. Emails are like the bane of my existence. Really? I'm, I'm getting worse and worse at them. Yeah? Yeah. So tell people about our podcast. Oh, yes, we have just done our 10th episode of In Between. Josh was listening to something about that if you make it past your like eighth episode on podcast, then it's like we're better than 83% of people. You know, I really, um, somebody did send me an email yeah. just today saying they couldn't make it to class today uh -huh. and wanted to know if... Well, neither could anyone else. If, if, if what we're doing is available later. Yes, it comes out on Tuesday mornings, the yeah, audio it goes does. Out. Yeah. There's an archive link on the Ordinary Life website, and if you go to that link, you can see, you can hear last week's talk, and yep. you can read the text that we have in front of us that we sometimes it's, look at. So actually, it's even easier than going to the archives. It's under Connect With Us, and you go to uh, podcasts and and Sunday classes. Right. So our podcast and our Sunday class are actually on the same stream. And you can just go to that stream and, and click on either weekly lectures or weekly podcasts. So anyway, what I was going to say is I checked that out this morning. And every episode, both of the talk and of the podcast, has great artwork with it. Thank you. Oh, you're that welcome. looks really cool. Oh, you're welcome. Some of them I, I remember, some I don't. <laughs> Um, like I remember to do it and some I don't. Anyway, so join us and listen to our weekly podcast. We're just trying to find ways to um, connect with y'all. And I'm going to send an email. I meant to do it last week to to those of you who are subscribed to Ordinary Life and just ask if anyone wants to have a five-minute chat with us on the podcast about either your spiritual practice, what's keeping you well during this time, and what do you miss? Um, so if you want to join us on the podcast, hear from me and you can email me and we'll do what we did with Richard. <laughs> and, Have a small interview. And we are planning in the uh, sometime in September, not in this month. Uh, we're going to have a way to invite some of you. We'll figure out a way to join Holly and me in a Zoom kind of town hall meeting. Yeah, like maybe on a rotational uh, on basis. On some sort of basis we're going to do that. And the reason that I say not in August is because we're going to be putting our energy into preparing for a webinar event with Michael Moorwood, who is going to be online with us on Thursday night, August the 27th. And um, if you want to go to the Ordinary Life website, and under the resources, there is a blog that I wrote called My Encounter with Michael Moorwood. And in that um, posting, there is a link to three interviews that were uh, done with Michael Morewood on Progressive Spirit. Mm -hmm. And they are what initially attracted me to him. And um, I got in touch with him, asked him if he would come to Houston. He did. He turns out to be a seven on the Enneagram. Is he really? Yeah, like me. And so we played together really well. He's yeah. got a great sense of humor. He, he was fantastic. He was, and, yeah. and so anyway, he's going to be back with us, not in person. And also um, in October the 17th and 18th, the 17th is a Saturday, we'll have a full day with Dr. Jackie Lewis. You want to know more about her, go to Collegiate Middle Church in Manhattan on their website and see the work that they do. It's really an amazing kind of thing. So um, do that. Anything else? I don't think so. If you, would, if you would like to make online donations to Ordinary Life, you can go to the donate button on our website and follow the link. And in the memo of the St. Paul's donation form, just write Ordinary Life and it's appreciated. It's well distributed, and it also um, can help bring people like Michael Moorwood 
and Dr. Lewis We're here. Doing that. So, yeah. So I want to say no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Everybody these days is a pajama person, so mm -hmm. welcome. Mm -hmm. I want to begin today by asking you um, a couple questions. The question, first question is, why are you here? Why are you spending your time like this, this Sunday morning? And kind of an akin question is it to it is, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Why do we spend our time and energy doing this? Got it? So I want to tell you a story. It's a teaching story that comes from the Sufi tradition. I think this may be one of my favorite stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a, I, I've told this story before in here, but it's been a long time ago. And uh, I think of this story like a dream, that every element in the story, every character and element in the story has a symbolic meaning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. And in Sufism, we find two of our people that we really like a lot, Hafiz, Hafiz and Rumi, <laughs> mm -hmm. both come from this tradition. Uh, Sherry and I have gotten in the habit of reading uh, in the morning together a section of Hafiz, yeah. and I shared one with you this yes, week about I the elephant and the ant. I, yeah. I love that. We used that at some point. Hafiz is actually just really quite funny. He is funny and sometimes hard to understand. Yes. Yeah. I'll put it that way. But Sufi tradition um, revolves around devotion to God through faith and humility and gratitude and courtesy and generosity. It's um, a school of knowledge for inner exploration and spiritual directors use it to direct people to as a resource for growing in spiritual values because they're non-sectarian. And uh, that's always been a great appeal to me. I have wondered what we have done, how we have fixed it so that many people cringe when they hear the word Jesus. Mm. It's true. It's true. I think if you say anything like, oh, I go to a Christian church, the first, if you're remotely kind of progressive, the first thing is a bristle. Well, we're going to, we, we hope to correct some of Jesus that. Jesus probably bristles a little at the Christian church. I don't the think whole thing. he knew much about that. That's right. <laughs> so, um, a Sufi story, a long Sufi story is like a Zen cone. Uh, you kind of live into the story and let it work its magic on you. <laughs> and uh, again, this story in its printed form will be available on the website on Tuesday morning. But here's the story. Once there lived a metal worker, a locksmith, who was unjustly accused of crimes and was sentenced to a deep, dark prison. After he had been there a while, his wife, who loved him very much, went to the king and beseeched him that she might at least give him a prayer rug so that he could observe his five prostrations a day. The king considered that a lawful request, so he let the woman bring her husband a prayer rug. And the prisoner was thankful for to get the rug from his right wife. And every day he did his five prostrations on the rug. Much later, the man escaped from prison. <clears throat> and when people asked him how he got out, he explained that after doing years of his prostrations and praying for deliverance from prison, he began to see right what was right in front of his nose. One day he saw suddenly that his wife had woven into the prayer rug the pattern of the mechanism of the clock that imprisoned him. This is not that prayer rug. It's just a random prayer rug. <laughs> he now knew how the lock worked. And once he realized this and understood that all the information he needed to escape was already in his possession, he began to make friends with his guards he persuaded the guards that they all would be better if they cooperated and escaped prison together. They agreed, since although they were guards, they realized they were in prison too. 
<clears throat> they also wished to escape, but they had no means to do so. So the locksmith and his guards decided on the following plan. They would bring him pieces of metal, and he would fashion useful items for them to sell in the marketplace. Together they would amass resources for their escape, and from the strongest piece of metal they, would, they could acquire, the locksmith would fashion a key. One night, when everything had been prepared, the locksmith and his guards unlocked the prison and walked out into the cool night where his beloved wife was waiting for him. He left the prayer rug behind so that another prisoner, who was clever enough to read the pattern of the rug, could also make his escape. Thus, the locksmith was reunited with his loving wife, his former guards became his friends, and everyone lived in harmony. Love and skillfulness prevail. <clears throat> I love that story. It's a great story. And I'm just sitting here thinking, if only that were a possibility. It in, is a possibility. In, uh, in, the, in the actual physicality of prisoners. And oh, guards. in the actual physicality. Yeah. Well, it might lead to that. Right. But if you consider this story like a dream, mm. the man had to draw on or be open to receiving the gift from the feminine. Mm -hmm. The answer he needed was already within him. Mm -hmm. The guards who were uh, holding him prisoner were things he needed to befriend right. and cooperate with to find a way to freedom. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's just a wonderful story. Uh, sometimes people ask specific questions about spiritual practice. So I thought I'd show you a couple of pictures of a um, place where I do my sitting. That's a prayer rug mm. that I got in Istanbul with the help of um, Joanna Schinke. And you can't see everything that's on that little table in front, but in the, in the, near the front and to the left, there's a little round piece of stone and Muslim men would put those on the top of their prayer rug so that when they went down and their foreheads touched, that's the place where they would touch. Mm -hmm. Another part, it's messy. You can tell a seven on the Enneagram by the way their desk is messy, how many books they have and all that sort of thing. And these are things that I have just collected over the years to um, help establish a mood. Yeah. For meditation. Um, we light incense because that gives us an altered sense of right. consciousness. Sound gives an altered sense of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Closing the eyes can uh, give you um, kind of an opportunity to relax and not be distracted. Mm -hmm. um, icons I find particularly appealing and I have many more than you can see there. That one that we begin uh, every Sunday with, the Pancatakotor, um, is one of my favorites, but yeah. there you go. One of the things that I have kept around my house are almost like, sometimes they're in bowls, sometimes just sitting out, or just like natural objects. Um, old coral that I've found, shells or rocks that just, for me, something tactile. Mm -hmm. And this may sound a little bit lazy, but um, but you know, sometimes life is really fast paced, especially with three kids or, you know, you know, whatever sort of life gets up and starts moving that just the ability to sometimes pick one of those objects up in a moment mm -hmm. is really soothing. It can mm -hmm. just kind of, hmm, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, the story that you told, I really, I love, I think we're both kind of angling towards the same thing is that the guards, the, the key the, the, the wisdom of the feminine, it's all within. And this is Diarmut Omiraku's principle of when the disciple comes of age, right? That, right? that the disciple becomes the teacher and becomes the source of his or her own liberation. And as I was thinking about right mind this week, I was thinking about, it's just funny, I was thinking about right mind, <laughs> which is an irony in its own right, but I, I kept kind of, thinking about the paradox of, of, of right mind, which is how one thing can have multiple meanings. And in the story that you told, there's, there's multiple meanings at every level of the story. 
I thought about statements that I'm pretty sure every kid, I know my kids have heard it. Are you out of your mind or have you lost your mind? <laughs> right? That it's funny because I think those, those kinds of questions are often disparaging or shaming. What are you thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I wasn't. <laughs> and I also think that they're useful when taken just as they are. When we talk about right mindfulness, the idea is to get out of your mind, to be in right mind, to lose your mind to find it. Mm -hmm. So as the great Zen teacher Alan Watts says, we all need to go out of our minds at least once a day. When we go out of our minds, we quickly come to our senses. And what we lose, we, we want to lose, the part of our mind to sort of lose, if you will, is the attention to the constant chatter, the constant monkey mind, the constant anxiety, the, the, the words that run through our brain like a tape, I think. And that monkey mind we so often mistake for truth. But the fact is, we, we probably won't ever shut it off completely. Right. But we can learn to dire- redirect our attention. You know, I've heard... Uh, Richard Orr say on numerous occasions that people want peace of mind. And he said, I've never met anybody in their mind who was at peace. Mm. And I've never met anybody who was at peace who was in their mind. <laughs> now, that's a little bit, as you said, this, this non-dual reality is something we really can't talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Finley says that non-duality communicates itself. But in the process of talking about living with right mindfulness, which I personally think is the key of all the eightfold things that we're talking about. And right mindfulness is what enables us to do what Karen Armstrong talks about when she talks about praying the immeasurables of love, where we bring loving kindness and compassion to all that we do. And we're calling this talk today, Living with a Heart, uh, a mind is as big as the world. Mindful living is not easy. Um, I'm not even sure if you delved into Buddhist literature that you would think that it is simple because they have so many lists and rules and ways of understanding how we cause ourselves suffering. I do, however, think that mindful living um, gets easier with practice. And it's the practice that I keep um, annoying people about. The the daily one? (laughs) You have to have a a daily practice. Yeah. Now, if you grew up believing that necessary answers are certain answers, then getting involved in meditation and spiritual practice is going to throw you for a loop because you will move into a land of uncertainty and ambiguity, a land of contradiction, uh, a land of paradox, even. Um, you know, I, I I look back at the story that I told, and every day it seems to me I discover another way that I'm in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we talk about living with freedom and love, and I think every day it's being brought to my attention, and so I'm becoming more mindful of it that I live in a culture that has been created to favor white people. Right. And it's so easy to go blind to that. Right. And to, you know, as we sort of get aware to that and um, for sure to say as a white person to say, I, I've lived in a prison too, or I've, you know, is, 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 is can be triggering. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think what we must learn to see is that the, the constructs that keep us from liberating not just our own minds, but the hearts and souls participating in the liberation of the hearts and souls of others, it is its own prison and it's a self-creating, you know, it's a self-perpetuating. Go back to the questions. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Right. Right. Why are we here? What is this for? Yeah. I think of someone like Nelson Mandela who spent so much time in a literal prison, just like this story, right? But who, over the course of time, at 30 years in prison, he didn't ever lose his mind 
to the degree that one might think, you know, in that sort, in that way. He actually found his right mind. And what he yeah. did contributed to the freedom yeah. uh, of many, many other people and yeah. the whole uh, truth and reconciliation right. process that came out right. of that. So which we, I think, need some form of. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, another phrase that comes to mind. I think skip ahead one more, um, which is thinking outside the box. I remembered a saying as I was kind of thinking about this. <laughs> Again, like the thinking about mindfulness is another paradox um, that Eckhart Tolle is attributed to Eckhart. He said, thinking is the box. And in researching this quote, I came across a story. A beggar had been sitting by the side of the road for over 30 years. One day, a stranger walked by. Spare some change, mumbled the beggar, mechanically holding out his old bas baseball cap. I have nothing to give you, said the stranger. Then he asked, what's that you're sitting on? Nothing, replied the beggar, just an old box. I've been sitting on it for as long as I can remember. Have you ever looked inside, asked the stranger. No, said the beggar. What's the point? There's nothing there. Have a look inside, insisted the stranger. The beggar managed to pry open the lid, and with astonishment, disbelief, and elation, he saw the box was full of gold. So Eckhart Tolle says, I am that stranger, all of us really, are that stranger who has nothing to give you and who is telling you to look inside. Not inside any box, as in the parable, but somewhere even closer, which is inside the self. I, I mean, your, your one year spent on the Gospel of Thomas really serves here because it's that saying of what you bring forth within you mm -hmm. will transform you. What you do not bring forth with, from within you will destroy you. Will destroy you. Yeah. So, and I think that that is one of the hardest things for us to get at peace with is that we are our own box of gold. And, it, and I know in struggling with that, I have sometimes felt a certain kind of arrogance, like a certain kind of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not worthy of being my own gold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's exactly problem, the problematic thinking is that if I don't see the gold within myself, I can't see it in anything else, right? that I, I believe this other wise man who I'm pointing to has said, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Yeah, and when we get in, in to the, the last of the Eightfold Step, mm -hmm. next Sunday we're going to talk about this because we really do have some ways of thinking about who we are that are so destructive. Yeah, I, oh gosh. I, I, People will sometimes say in a, a counseling session or a session of spiritual direction, I really need to practice more self-control. Mm. Who's saying that? Mm -hmm. And who's the self that needs control? Right. Or I need to increase my self-esteem. Right. And, and how does that work exactly? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so this box, I think, the thinking in the box or out of the box can trap us in two directions. We can get so far inside the box that we can't see our way out. Again, as you're saying, you know, these sort of patterns of thinking that become almost addictive. This is what I think is meant by thinking, uh, by thinking is not the box. When we get trapped in the, in the monkey mind, we are in the box. And on the other hand, if we get out of the monkey mind, but stay in the container, in the body, and that's what the Alan Watts quote meant. When we get out of our minds, we come to our senses. We come to our body. We discover the gold. If you never open it, you'll never find the gold inside of it. You cannot free the box if you don't go inside. So here's a Hafiz poem that I stumbled across this week. One day the sun admitted, I am just a shadow. I wish I could show you the infinite incandescence that has cast my brilliant image. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So how do we lose our minds to keep them? How do we get outside of the box to see our astonishing light? The Eightfold Path in part teaches us that right mindfulness is of course a process, one that we have an opportunity to return to again and again and again. I want to reiterate that the Eightfold Path is not linear. You don't get there. It's a continual practice of growth and expansion. And when we find ourselves being constricted, it's another opportunity 
for growth and expansion to return. And, and more uncertainty and ambiguity. Yes, yeah, and it's being able to hold that uncertainty and ambiguity with, with the certainty. I remember uh, when I was in graduate school having a professor in uh, psychology explain the phenomenon of the more you know, the more you know, the less you know. Yeah. And he did it by doing a graph on the blackboard or green board, chalkboard, whatever you call those things these days. He drew a circle and inside it he wrote known. Mm -hmm. And outside it he wrote unknown. Mm -hmm. Everything is outside the circle is what is unknown. Which goes on and on and, and on, on, on and on. <laughs> and if, if you look at the the perimeter of the circle, if you were to cut it and measure, straighten it out, it would be a little bitty line. Uh -huh. So not much of the known touches the unknown. Yeah. But the more you expand that circle, the bigger that line gets yeah. so that there's more on the outside of the circle that right. you know, I, that I that's don't a beautiful know. illustration. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful illustration. So the, the Eightfold Tath tells us that there are, there are several obstacles to right mind. One is over-identification with the mind. Which... None of these apply to me. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're pretty much already in right mind all the time. Oh. So over-identification causes us, with our mind, causes us to become compulsive. Getting lost in compulsive concepts with labels, images, judgment, definitions, prejudice, what we think about ourselves, what we think about others, the tendency to just sort of be like, oh, she's so, or he's so that those compulsivities become obsessions. We get obsessed with our, what we think is true. And then when this happens, when we're in compulsion and obsession, we begin to believe the illusion of a separate self. I am not you. We stay in the I am not you category of being. I can't possibly see myself in you. It's not necessary to get into another binary to choose body or mind. So much of Buddhism, I think, teaches the balance of being in body and mind. Um, Teilhard de Chardin called this spirit matter, that there's just a hyphen between the two. I almost want to erase the hyphen and just call it spirit matter, just one word. Mm -hmm. But where the supposed opposites become one, this is in Jungian psychology as well, that integrating the opposites is wholeness. So being able to hold the paradoxes. Right? Well, the same thing applies to the word interbeing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I noticed this morning that um, Richard Rohr is beginning a week of meditation on uh, mysticism, particularly focusing this week on German mystics. Um, and, and I'm thinking he quotes in the online meditation today the very familiar thing that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh does about seeing everything in one thing. Yeah. And that a rose, for example, is made up of non-rose elements. Yeah. There's a there's somewhere in his book, it might it's either interbeing or the heart of the Buddha's teachings that says we are made of mostly non-human elements. Non-human elements. Right. Like we're, you know, what so what is the human element? You know, Descartes said it was the pineal gland, the mind, right? There's a cartoon that yeah. I put in the announcement slide. I don't know if you saw it or not, but little maker beings are talking to God about creating humans and they are saying, you think 87% water is too squishy? <laughs> <laughs> we might be a little more globular. But, you know, the thing is, you know, the Eightfold Path and the, and the teachings of Jesus teach us that we already are one. There's no two-ness here. But that, but that we differentiate, and it's natural for us to differentiate. We differentiate from our mothers. We differentiate from our uh, from our spaces. We differentiate with the I. But the the falsehood of the differentiation is that if we never get back to the we, then we we can't live into inner being. So it's again this tricky balance. It's so important to differentiate and individuate, but it's also so important to see that in the context of everything else. I think this is one of the attractions of the Enneagram for me. Yeah. Both uh, Alan Watts and Sandra Matry and Thich Nhat Hanh and probably other spiritual teachers mm -hmm. do this as well. But I know they f those three do specifically in saying that a human being is like a wave in the ocean. Mm -hmm. It comes into being. It's not the ocean. Right but it doesn't exist apart from the right. ocean either. Right. And so we arise and we fall away and we come into being our wave-like self and we take that as being who we are 
But if we have a tool, say, like the Enneagram, and we begin to understand that mm -hmm. who we think we are is just a, quote, personality, it's a tool that we've used to get around on the planet, mm -hmm. then it's easier to go back into seeing essence. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a great tool, a great yeah. benefit to knowing the Enneagram. Yeah. What earlier, I thought of earlier this week when we were talking about sort of this feeling of being dislocated. And, you know, this word actually applies to a limb or an organ of the body that's out of place. If we take the illustration of the earth, for example, bearing a single body and everything in it has its sort of consistent various parts, it's easy to imagine that we're a part of the body that's kind of dislocated from the earth. And so I had thought about this story when I was little, probably eight or nine. There was a, a, a boy on our block or who lived in the neighborhood who was a bit tough, a bit rough around the edges, and he was kind of a bully. And he had a skateboard that he was really, really proud of. And he said, holding a skateboard, if anyone touches my skateboard, they're going to die. <laughs> so what do you think I did? Touch the I touched the skateboard. And he chased me, and he tripped me, and I went sprawling on the concrete, and I dislocated my shoulder. And that dislocation of my shoulder, it hurt. And I actually, I never went to the doctor about it. I never uh, attended to it. And over time, as I played softball for 15 or 20 years, however long it was, and played center field, my shoulder would dislocate on a regular basis. So all I would do is pop it back in and keep going. <laughs> but that, I tell that story just to say that like, there's a, I still have some pain in that shoulder, just residual old scar tissue. And I have to remember that pain to relocate myself to the body. Right? I, I tried to ignore it for a long time. I did. And I, I sort of think of it now like a reminder to be in the body and not dislocate from the body. But, and, and Thich Nhat Hanh says that part of right mindfulness is remembering ourselves to the body. In Sanskrit, this word is smriti. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But it's smriti means to remember. And it literally means a return to the body. Thich Nhat Hanh outlines these several, seven miracles of mindfulness, which he says, if we pay attention to them, then we are in presence, and it's impossible then to be dislocated from presence. Again, I just want to point out the irony of like having so many steps to right mindfulness, so many sort of thinking things about right mindfulness. But number one is attention to self, stopping. Number two, is presence to the other, calming. Number three is nurturing the object of your attention, whatever that is, resting, pausing. Number four, relieving another's suffering, healing. These four lead to our greater ability to look deeply, to understand inclusivity and lovingness as reality or as really the only thing that ever will keep us from flying apart. And then we are more apt to experience transformation. So we have to use our mind to lose it. <laughs> so uh, I want to try to talk um, a little bit about how we get away from the self and um, I'm thinking, you know, that I, I've said many, many times in here over the years, there's nothing in our culture that supports what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, there's almost everything in our culture that goes against what we're talking about. Our education system does, which I'm going to talk about uh, now, but our, our um, real religion in this culture, which is consumerism, does. Mm -hmm. um, like everybody else, I think during this pandemic, we have watched more things on TV than um, we used to mm -hmm. because we're spending so much time inside. Yeah. And um, I know that I've gotten subscriptions to other streaming services so that we can watch other things. Yeah. And uh, like, like Acorn. I have an British Acorn, I have an Acorn <laughs> subscription. Yeah. I do. Um, yeah. I also have a Hulu subscription. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon. I mean, a lot of things. Yeah, I think uh, we have them all too. <laughs> well, you have kids, and that yeah. makes sense. They don't watch I a was, lot of TV. I think. I think. I think Josh watches more TV than my kids. 
So I was talking to somebody online, of course, the uh -huh. other day, uh, and and um, I asked him because I had just gotten it. I got it so Sherry and I could watch Hamilton. I said, "Do you have Disney Plus?" And he looked at me through over the t computer like I was crazy, and he said, "Bill, I've got teenage, I've got two little kids. Of course, I have Disney Plus. Yeah. <laughs> I can watch all the cartoons and right. movies right. and things like that." Yeah. So. So I've said that, and I've, I've also said that uh, if I don't leave you with anything to hold on to, that's good. <laughs> but but you've got to hold, you've got to understand some things clearly in order to know that there is nothing to hold on to. There's another, there's another paradox. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how one of the big blocks for many people in having either a meditative or a spiritual practice is objectivism. And when we get into next week, I will be more thorough in differentiating between having a meditation practice and having a spiritual practice mm -hmm. because they are um, two different things. So let me see if I can explain this as it applies to our religious categories and our spiritual practices, okay? So Everything is always in an evolutionary flow. We are in this process of things arising and falling away, and our understanding of even the evolutionary process is evolving. Um, but we are part of something that is evolving and creative and ongoing all the time. Everything, everybody, our bodies are, I remember my cardiologist before he was murdered saying to me one time, he was Buddhist, yeah. and he said, um, when I asked him if there's any cure for coronary artery disease, he said, no, we will we'll live with it. He said, you know, Buddhists said that having a body is living in a house that's on fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Not a yeah. comforting feeling. Not a comforting feeling. But and... But, Fire is transformative. Yeah, it is. And, and we need to be aware of that. Otherwise, we'll fall for the illusion that we're separate. Right. right. Everything that houses us is in the process of crumbling away. Mm. Um, but we're trained not to notice this. We have learned to stick things into permanent categories of what we want and what we don't want and what we can ignore. We've even formed an education process in this country that allows us to learn without knowing. It's called objectivism. And objectivism treats subjects as objects to be manipulated rather than related to. Mm -hmm. If education dealt with subjects rather than objects, it would be called subjectivism. And that doesn't even sound good to people. You know, be objective, you must be objective. So if you attended public school in this country since World War II, you have been educated into objectivism. And that's probably a good thing if you're an engineer or you're a pilot or you're a surgeon or a mathematician but it doesn't work well in a lot of other disciplines. We've even been taught objectivism when it comes to our religious and spiritual matters. Objectivism treats reality as something that is out there, that it is knowable. And we're taught that if we related to the truth subjectively, we'll run into errors and biases and illusions and distortions. Objectivism sounds good, but the vitality of life is not in outward stuff. The life that matters, like the man who is in prison, is inward. Everything we know is inward. For example, for most people, God is out there. Difficult to um, get to, detached from us. And it is really difficult to know this God. Actually, if you really want to know this God, you need to be trained as a theologian. You need to go to seminary and need to have a doctorate in theology. And um, this God that we create, we can study in systematic theology and dogmatic theology and all those other things. Um, but you can't love this God. 
because this is, a, this is an, uh, an object. We may fear this God, we may regard this God with awe, but because this God does not enter our lives and feel our feelings with us, we have a hard time loving this God with all that we have. We are asked, even commanded, to love this God, but we're not given the tools for how to do that. We're taught, we are taught what to see, not how to see. And this, I think, is the reason that so many people have trouble with a spiritual life. The spiritual life requires relationship with the sacred, and relationships are always confusing and messy. At least mine are. <laughs> yeah. Only the ones that I'm not in control of, which there, there, is all of them. <laughs> so, um, I have come up over the years with many definitions that work for me of what it means to be a Christian. Some people will ask me, uh, after hearing me speak, are you a Christian? And I stole a line from my dear brother, Matt Russell, about this. Um, Matt was asked that one day after a sermon he preached, somebody came up to him and said, are you a Christian? And Matt said, I don't know. Tell me what you think a Christian is and I'll tell you yeah. whether I am that or not. Yeah. Well, we have an objective answer yes. for what it means to be a Christian. Yes. Uh, this is my current answer to that. Being Christian is about having a relationship with the God of Jesus and having the faith and trust that this relationship will not leave us unchanged. So after Jesus' death and his followers having a time to reflect on his life and teachings and had developed the, uh, that had developed with living with the spirit of Jesus, this movement started that eventually began to be called Christianity. One not call that in the beginning called people of the way, followers of the way. Um, the good news about the Christian movement is that the gap between God and humans had been closed. But the government told this fledgling group that they were going to have to get their act together, no more diversity. They had to come up with something everybody agreed with. And uh, that was easy. The ones with the power and the money got to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you disagreed with that, you were either killed or you fled. But that's a, that's a whole other story. But what this movement did was that it objectified, get back to this, it objectified Jesus. Oh, now I see my error in taking out that first slide. You reinserted it. I fixed it. it. Okay, good. <laughs> I probably didn't do it well. but No, you did it great. It was my fault. Jesus got put on a pedestal uh -huh. enshrined in stained glass in a display case about as far away from most people as possible. Today, if you were to take a poll of most people who call themselves Christian, they would have very little difficulty believing that Jesus is divine that Jesus of this, this non-dual nature of being sacred and divine. Of course Jesus is divine. He's part of the Godhead or the Trinity or however you want to put it. But those same people would have a great deal of difficulty seeing Jesus as human. I mean, did he get married? Yeah. There's some supposition about right. that. But people have a hard time because we objectify Jesus as being so different from us, yes. so out there. Well, we created this religion with like this pinpoint, right? Um, anyone can be part of it, but you have to go through this pinpoint, through Jesus. Right. As opposed to Jesus being incarnated and all, right? Right. It's a central doctrine of the Christian faith, and yet it gets pushed aside. Right. Right. Yeah. And in almost all Christian worship that I know about, we, we keep enforcing this objectivity by um, reciting creeds that were written before Copernicus. Yeah. Yeah. We, that, that, it, that uphold the three-tiered universe. So yeah. the, then the next thing that got objectified uh, was being saved. Mm -hmm. It became some event that happened once. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Well, that's taken care of. And mm -hmm. I'll go to the beach now or <laughs> do something else. Now I'll have that margarita. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, uh, it's in a different time. It's in a different place. doesn't have anything to do with ongoing, living 
loving kindness and compassion and patience and those kind of things in the present moment. Christianity or any spiritual, living spiritual religion is about something you do, not something that you believe. Then the next thing that happened was that um, the Bible got objectified and made, again, thanks to Luther, whose motto was solo scriptura, only through scripture. It wasn't through acts of loving kindness and compassion or spiritual practice or anything like that. If you had the Bible, which became Protestants, paper pope, mm -hmm. then you were safe. And then the next thing that got objectified was faith itself. Scripture stopped being a story that we could live into and see our own story in in uh, the Bible became a list of rules and principles. Um, I just want to be clear. Jesus did not ever say, believe these principles. What he said was, open up. I'd like to come in. I'd like to have dinner with you. Can we talk? That sort of thing. But we want to put labels on things and make them stay in place and labels on people and make them stay in place. And that's for our comfort. But what results is that spiritual practice becomes focused on believing certain things rather than becoming personally involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love. And that is what it's all about. I'll say that again. We are to be involved, not spectators to, in the process. It's not something that's fixed. The ongoing process of becoming keeps evolving, centers that's integrated, getting our stuff together, cleaning up our act, as it were, so to speak, of freedom, which is the ultimate goal of the human animal, and uh, love, which is the highest definition of sacred mystery. But this approach has led to us substituting words for uh, things. I didn't started that too soon, but that's okay. <laughs> Can we do this or you want me to back it up? I think it won't play until you click it. Um, but, you know, as you're talking, though, it's okay to go forward. The, okay. You know, I think about that we've gotten this picture of a three-tiered universe. God, us, hell, right? <laughs> like, right. And w w we need to disrupt that three-tiered universe. And as I think about uh, Jesus represents the incarnation of what, of the out there God. Thus, incarnation and God became reality among all things. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that in language outside of religion too. So it's okay to play this. And because what, in, what, what understanding incarnation does is it returns us to the body, as Alan Watts said, to the senses. And this return to the body is, to me, matter must experience itself in order to become spiritualized. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We must be in the body in order to also know ourselves spiritually. Um, one of the great lines that you said many times before is that is, you know, talking about this illusion of the separate self. There is no separate self. And of course, Buddhism talks about that and many other wise religions. In particular, humans like to believe that we were sort of like plucked out of God's treasure box, that box of gold, and just put here, as opposed to another incarnational reality that came out of deep time evolution, that came that evolved up out of this material structure. I love how people like Teilhard de Chardin, Thomas Berry, Brian Swim, Ilya Delio. We were talking about Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day. You can play that. Um, Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, what he aims to do is to place the human person in the reality of the universe, not separate from it. He says, um, you, we are part of this universe. We are in this universe. But perhaps more important than both of those facts is the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, I look up. Many people feel small because they are small. And the universe is so big. But I feel big because my atoms from these stars. And as this video plays, just kind of notice that it goes from this macro to the micro, sort of back out to the macro. And his words really have the calculation. He's not a theologian, he's an astrophysicist, but his words also 
have the power to remember us to our bodies and to this earth and to then beyond that to the wider cosmos. We are an incarnation of the wider cosmos. We're regulated by the systems of the earth just as much as we have had the power to dysregulate its rhythms. When we're out of balance with the earth's rhythms, the whole thing becomes out of balance. Our bodies do, the earth does, the environment does. Some have equated the planetary rhythms to a mind, a kind of consciousness always at work. Claire Deschardins called this the neurosphere, this sort of um, evolution of complete consciousness that is a thin layer of the Earth's atmosphere. We also have a second mind at work within. It is our, it's in our body. It's our belly. It's rooted in our gut. It's been some time since I first read the book, The Second Brain, but it's based on the research that our belly is, operates as our second brain. It's not a thinking thing that writes poetry or whatever else, but it absorbs and transmits neurotransmitters that regulate our mood, our hormones, our general well-being. I know that Dr. Mark Rhodes could really amplify this with a lot more detail and give us a lot more insight into this, because this is what he studies. And, um, but suffice to say that when our gut is off, our mind is off. When the earth is off, we are off, and vice versa. Bodies, turning back to our body, gets us into right mind. So, wow. Yeah. That's I, amazing. I just love that, right? I mean, where did it, you get that? I, I found the video um, online, though, and I can't exactly remember where, but I put them, overlaid it with music. I, and, but we turned the music off for this, just so the visual was there. And sometimes I just use it as a little visual meditation, just kind of watching that go to the point of our eyeball. I think, though, and we were both talking about Francis Weller recently, a big source of our collective grief right now and confusion is a feeling of disconnection or dislocation. Mm -hmm. And this, we're not remembering where we belong. And, you know, for me, I know I feel a lot of grief that many of the structures where I felt belonging, where I could take my body and feel belonging, are not, we're not meeting here, for example, right? right? Um, so the gaze has to turn sort of towards that box of gold within, toward the universe within, to remember that wherever we are, we belong. And it, uh, so Francis Weller's work is all about tending to that deep grief of having lost our way, our connection to each other, and more deeply to the earth. We're in a dark wood. And not only do we need to sit with that sort of feeling of being in the dark wood, but we need to use our senses Again, as Alan Watts says, we need to return to our senses to feel our way through it. I've been reading this book, The, the Spell of the Sensuous, by David Abrams, I'm kind of slowly getting my way through it. Um, it's not a complex book. It's really beautiful, but it is um, But it, it, just because I'm reading too many other things and I fall asleep easily at night. It takes me a while. But the quote I love from it is, our bodies have formed themselves in delicate reciprocity with the manifold textures sounds, and shapes of an animate earth. Our eyes have evolved in subtle interaction with other eyes, as our ears are attuned by their very structure to the howling of wolves and the honking of geese. To shut ourselves off from these other voices. Oh, I gotta turn my page. <laughs> I need your little finger thing. I can't get my page unstuck. To shut ourselves off from these other voices to continue by our lifestyles, to condemn these other sensibilities to the oblivion of extinction, is to rob our own senses of their integrity and to rob our minds of their coherence. We are human only in contact and conviviality with what is not human. Wow. Okay. Hmm. You know, Holly, as we have, uh, we're kind of coming to the end of this particular part mm -hmm. of our study on Buddhism, but I am aware, as I have studied during the week, these things, getting reacquainted with some of the stuff in Buddhism, we could go on oh, and gosh. on about this. I mean, obviously, people commit their entire spiritual lives to this, and we've just said, well, we're going to give you an eight-week overview, kind of. Right. And, and you and I both use some of these principles in our own to guide our own 
right. spiritual life because when you really look deeply at Buddhism, uh, the teachings of Jesus, Hinduism, Sufism, you said once, all you can create 10 wells five feet deep, right? Or you can create one well 500 feet deep, right. feet deep and all those they'll, waters They all get together. connected down right. there. So there's a connection between all of these wisdom teachings. So you uh, have an answer? Go deep. Go deep. Don't go. Uh, that's Jim Wallace's line. Don't go right. Don't, don't go left. Go deep. Ah, there you I go. love that. <laughs> so um, why are we here? Why are you doing this? Um, what this work, and yes, this is work, it has to do, as I said a minute ago, with two primary things. It has to do with freedom, and it has to do with love. We, we seek freedom as humans, and love is consistent with the definition of sacred mystery. And what I want ordinary life to be about is a place to gain the tools and the insights and the skills and the personhood that would create a safe context of human relationship in which people, that's you and me, can come to understand and to stand under the reality that makes it possible for us to experience those things of freedom and love. So we started today with a Sufi story about a man in prison. The current unveiling of systemic racism in this country has revealed a lot of sobering and sad statistics about criminal justice system in this country, particularly related to incarceration. I put into my search engine, as they say, on my computer, this question. Are there slaves today? Yes. It's stunning. There are more slaves today than there were during the height of the transatlantic slave trade. Look it up yourself. And most of them are women. The vast majority are women. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of children under the age of 12. Mm-hmm. It's stunning. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. So one of the reasons that we do this work is that so we can be free and that we can contribute to the freedom of other human beings. That's a central tenet in Buddhism. Um, Hillel, the Jewish sage who was part of the evolution of right religion, by the way, that made up the first axial age, said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, then what am I? And if not now, when? Our, our religious practices, our spiritual practices are intended to bring things together internally as well as externally, uh, externally to, to provide healing and reconciliation. Meaning matters, but experience matters more. And what you hear from Holly and me matters almost not at all if it does not promote the experience of freedom freedom and healing for you. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's a great time to show the, uh, after you said, who am, who, who am I if I am not for me? <laughs> Wayne Herbert sent me this. I did it, says Robin, I'm enlightened. And Batman says, there is no I, keep meditating. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Near yeah. the end of his life, Carl Jung was asked, will we make it? Mm. And Jung said, If enough of us do our personal work, yeah. and that's what we mean by right, mindfulness. I urge you not to be part of a class on freedom and love and be untouched by freedom and love yourself. Or fa by failing in having a method, some method, to experience and express the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. Don't just know about these things, but experience and express these things. The great temptation of our culture is to think and believe that the rules don't apply to me. There was this minister who was preaching a thundering sermon to his congregation one Sunday, and he ended up by saying, you all will die. Every member of this church will come face to face with the eternal judge, and you will have to give an account of your life and all your sins in it and suffer the punishment that God will impose. Fear and tremble. And the congregation shuddered, except for one man in the back of the church 
who just started laughing out loud. And the minister rebuked him from the pulpit and said, Are you out of your mind that you don't recognize the seriousness of the situation? Every member of this church is going to face, God's, face God in judgment. And a man was still laughing when he said, But I don't belong to this church. <laughs> and that's our thinking. Yeah. This doesn't apply to me. I'm an exception to this. Or I can't do anything about this. But evolutionary cosmology has been saying and the unveiling since the murder of George Floyd is under my underlining the truth of the fact that we are all in the same boat. And that's the tending to collective liberation, to tending to ourselves as both the prisoner and the guard. Right. Both the policeman and George Floyd. We're all locked up. Yeah. And need freedom. So we want to create and be part of a human context and relationships, again, that's you and me, who can come to understand, or as I say, to stand under the reality that makes it possible for us to experience being set free and being loving creatures. Thank you. Thank you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Have a good one.